The X Worker. An audio strike against a monotone world. A podcast of anarchist ideas and action. For everyone who dreams of a life off the clock. What you're about to hear is an audio guided walking tour for Washington, D.C. But if you're not in D.C., you can still enjoy the tour by checking out the photos in this episode's show notes at crimethink.com slash podcast. The tour is wheelchair accessible with just one small detour. You can take the tour at any hour, but we recommend between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. while the Potter's House Books and Cafe is open. Also, we'll be hosting two live versions of this walking tour on Sunday, January 15th and Monday, January 16th. 2017. Just show up at 2 p.m. at the Lincoln Theater at 1215 U Street, Northwest Washington, D.C. Now for the audio tour. We'll begin at Ben's Chili Bowl, 1213 U Street, Northwest, across from the U Street Cardozo Metro stop on the Green Line. Pause now and hit play again when you're in front of Ben's. Welcome to Washington, D.C., the heart of the empire. I'm Ray Valentine, and I lived just up the street from here in the late 90s and early 2000s when a powerful people's movement threatened the advance of global capitalism, especially its global financial mechanisms like the World Trade Organization, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and various free trade agreements. D.C. hosted some of the most significant demonstrations of this era, and was otherwise a hotbed of anarchist subculture and organizing. Most tours of D.C. take you around the monuments and museums downtown, but I want to show you another side of the city, the neighborhoods and DIY spaces from which anarchists launched our attacks on Capitol and where we planted seeds for a new world to take its place. We'll be visiting the convergence centers, punk venues, and independent media spaces of old, as well as spaces that are still used by anarchists today, including a radical bookstore, a historic park, and local landmarks like Ben's Chili Bowl. Through stories, interviews, and primary materials, we hope to pass on some of the lessons and inspiration that the anti-globalization movement can offer, especially as a new wave of struggle begins under Trump, part of whose campaign involved criticizing free trade agreements like NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, albeit from a nationalist and protectionist standpoint, rather than one seeking global liberation. We humbly aim for this audio tour to contribute to a movement that can do away with all the systems of authority that make a Trump presidency possible, and not just formulate narrow demands that can be used against us by another politician down the road. The other spoke from our affinity group will be Max Guevara, who will help guide us from site to site. Power to the people, Max. All power to the people, Ray. If I bottom-lined my task well, you won't need to hit pause much as I direct you through the city. But if I ever get ahead of you... Just hit pause until you get to the next destination, and our affinity group will regroup there. All right, have we reached a consensus? Let's get started. If open, go ahead and enter Ben's Chili Bowl, heading to the back room. If there's a private function going on, just stand out of the way and be polite, or the middle room works too. If closed, 
You can also listen to this part from outside of Ben's. Feel free to grab something to eat while Ray tells you some of the history behind this spot. There's vegan stuff on the menu, too. If there's only one kind of pork you're okay with frying, <laughs> Max, pigs are sensitive, intelligent, loving creatures. The complete opposite of cops. Whatever, Ray. Why don't you tell our listeners about the history here while I chow down on some vegan chili fries? All right. Thanks, Max. This back room was a favored meeting space for anarchists during the anti-globalization movement, and not just because of the cheap vegan eats. The rich history of black political and cultural achievement literally covers these walls. But it's more what happened within these walls that makes Ben's a hub for D.C. radicals. Founded in this very building in the 1950s, jazz greats like Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, and Nat King Cole would eat here after playing venues like the neighboring Lincoln Theater. In those days, 14th Street was the dividing line between white and black D.C. And this side of U Street was a vibrant cultural corridor known as Black Broadway. Um, why is it so vibrant? Well, partly is the artificial um, containment of all of this talent into a certain area because they couldn't go west of 14th Street, really. I mean, what you have is a essentially an independent economy, a city within a city that exists there because you have this artificial concentration of some of the most extraordinary talents in America. And just to the north is Howard University, um, and the U Street Corridor, the Black Broadway Springs Up, Howard Theater, um, all the other theaters, um, because that's the other thing. The politics and the culture are, are one, really. I mean, when you stand on U Street, you're in the middle of that political, cultural cauldron, um, which in many ways is the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Um, Howard University is the brains of much of what happens in African-American progress. In the 1960s, with the civil rights movement in full swing, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, opened their office on U Street, directly across from Ben's. Like the American Indian Movement and anti-capitalist convergence later on, SNCC would meet and hash out plans right here in the back of Ben's. SNCC stands out from other civil rights groups by their use of collective, non-hierarchical organizing practices, like consensus decision-making, which saw popularity later on in the anti-globalization movement. One of SNCC's members was a Howard University student by the name of Stokely Carmichael, who would influence the founding of the Black Panther Party and eventually be appointed as their honorary prime minister. On April 4th, 1968, as people poured out of nearby theaters, news began to spread that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Carmichael was on the scene running up and down U Street, urging businesses to close ahead of the anticipated upheaval. But the rage was uncontrollable. Yeah, you're breaking out the windows, doing all that crazy stuff like that there, and you could just see the police had no control. They, you know, that's why they would eventually bring in the uh, army. And then they would bring in the airborne. National Guard couldn't do anything. Police couldn't do anything. It was those uh, guys came in with the tanks. When the National Guard finally succeeded in taking back control, over a hundred stores had been looted, hundreds more were set ablaze, and more than 6,000 people had been arrested. Tragically, 12 people died, mostly in building fires. On the second night of looting and burning, Carmichael specifically asked Ben's Chili Bowl to stay open, to feed activists and provide a safe meeting space. Ben's owner, Ben Ali, agreed to stay open, and just to be safe, he wrote Soul Brother in soap on the front windows. 
But it was really the Chili Bowl's neighborhood reputation that kept it safe. I, I give you a, a thing that you should chew on. There was the Safeway, and there was a thing called Giant. Not one Giant got burned down, but yet the Safeways got burned down. Well, the, sa- the Giants, were, they were the only huge uh, food chain that would hire young blacks to bag their uh, groceries. So they were never touched. They were never touched by certain people for a lot of reasons. There were certain liquor stores who got by and never touched because the owners were very friendly with the neighborhoods. And then you had others who just took the money and they went out to Maryland. So yeah, it yeah. wasn't just like mindless Oh, no, 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 no. That's the way they try to portray it. That's why they call it a riot. Uh-huh. As if it's just... That's why I call it a rebellion. Uh-huh. And I can back it up with facts. Because I was here and I participated and I burnt and I threw stones through windows. I did all that. You know, Ray, I remember when we would come here to plan protests. There was a rumor that in 68, Ben's was used as a point to redistribute looted goods. Yeah, but the owners deny it. However, they do recall that people came in offering to trade looted bottles of liquor for food. 68 was the most explosive year for Black struggle in D.C., but this city lives and breathes Black liberation in general. You've got annual celebrations like the African Liberation Day rallies and Juneteenth celebrations. You've got Afrocentric schools and businesses many of which are run on egalitarian and cooperative principles. You've got all kinds of black radical culture and art going on. The legacy of black struggle is this city's social and political fabric, and it textures any other radical movements here, certainly anarchists. Another important backstory to the early 2000s is D.C.'s neo-colonial status. D.C. is not a state and does not have voting representation in Congress. For anarchists, we don't believe the vote is liberating, but you can see how people in D.C. might feel neglected compared to their neighbors in Virginia and Maryland. Combine this with the federal takeover of the city government in the 90s and the white flight and general poverty post-68, and you can understand the resentment D.C. residents have over their disenfranchisement. If you haven't noticed yet, every license plate says, Taxation Without Representation. All this sets the stage for the same kinds of free market fundamentalist policies, like privatizing schools and healthcare, to be imposed on D.C., at the same time that people from around the world are coming here to protest those kinds of policies being forced on the third world. But we'll talk more about that later. Have you finished those veggie chili fries yet, Max? No matter how hungry I think I am, I can never finish a full plate of these. Let's walk this off. Exit Ben's Chili Bowl and take a right, heading to the corner of 13th and U. It would be kind of you to spare some change if anyone's asking for it just outside the door. Real quick. Before you start walking, see that building across the street at 1212 U Street, just to the left of the Prospect Bar? That was the Kaffa House, a seedy, go-go, reggae soul bar where I saw some of my first punk shows. During Bush's inauguration in 2001, the Kaffa House was the convergence center for the protests, where you could go to get the latest information on housing, actions, and police repression. Hey, Ray, I thought you said this was a walking tour. All right, all right. I'll tell you more about that inauguration while we walk. Let's head to the corner of 13th and U. 
and cross 13th until you're on the corner with that big sign that says Ellington. It's no coincidence we're releasing this walking tour to coincide with Trump's inauguration. There haven't been inauguration protests this big since 2001, and those were wild. A big reason that inauguration was so wild and well-attended is it took place in the middle of a growing movement against the World Trade Organization, or WTO, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. The Black Bloc used a wheelbarrow to smash a police checkpoint, Bush's limo was hit with an egg, and after replacing the Navy Memorial's American flag with a black and red one, a masked anarchist evaded police capture by leaping over their heads and crowd surfing to safety. It's true that even before the wars in Katrina, everybody already hated W. But even the Washington Post reported that, quote, for many protesters, Bush isn't main issue. In fact, protest planning was underway before Bush was even announced the winner of that whole ballot fiasco in Florida. It didn't matter who won. Organizers saw both parties as puppets of the rich. Radicals called it the inaugural auction, which perfectly captures the spirit of the movement. The whole world is up for sale, corporations have too much power, and we have to stop them. Standing on the corner of the Ellington building, keep walking down U Street to the intersection of 14th and U. These bougie condos may be on the Black Broadway where Duke Ellington used to play, but the residents are so white, the lobby had complimentary tanning beds when it first opened. In Seattle in 99, 50,000 demonstrators surprised the whole world by successfully shutting down the WTO's meetings. The following April 16th, or A16, over 40,000 converged in D.C. to apply the same treatment to the World Bank and IMF. The president may have been the figurehead for corporate power in the United States, but his neighbors a block away at the World Bank and IMF were the real instruments of global capitalism. If a country wants to build a dam or a highway, or they're having a hard time paying their debts, they can go to the World Bank and IMF for a loan. But these loans come with strings attached, structural adjustment policies. This could mean privatizing healthcare or schools, cutting government subsidies of basic goods, or eliminating regulations on what foreign businesses can do or own. Basically, making it easier for multinational corporations to exploit the poor and the earth. What capitalists would call a business-friendly environment. The ideology behind these policies, that the value of life should be determined by the market alone, is called neoliberalism, or more commonly, free trade. These policies lead to higher costs for medicine and education, difficulty for small businesses and farmers, and earth-destroying, socially displacing infrastructure projects. Women are impacted the most. If a borrowing country doesn't comply with these policies, that's where the WTO comes in to enforce corporations' rights to do business without, quote, barriers to trade. The World Bank and IMF got their money by offering a $1, one-vote incentive. So the G7, the world's seven most advanced economies, control about 40% of the votes. And the U.S. has veto power. This facilitates a kind of recolonization, where rich countries squeeze the wealth and natural resources out of poorer countries, leaving behind poverty and debt. As terrible as these institutions are, it wasn't just awareness of their injustice that got people into the streets. It took innovative and participatory organizing. When you get to the corner of 14th and U, take a look out into the intersection. I want to illustrate what Ray means by innovative organizing. 
Look at this intersection. I mean, really look at it. Notice its size, the width of the lanes. What possible anchors could you lock Stefan to? How many people would it take to render this intersection completely unusable? Are the traffic lights too tall to hang banners from? Don't forget the manhole covers. The day before A16, two anarchists evaded a mass arrest by popping one of those open and escaping through the sewer. Part of the zeitgeist of that era was a kind of reimagining the city. Events like critical mass bike rides and reclaim the streets parties interrupted the dominant logic of the city. That the streets existed for cars, going to work, shopping, home, repeat. Street art was a big part of this too. Banksy is a household name now, but back then his zines had just started to circulate capturing subversive imaginations with his pieces and pithy anti-capitalist rants. Reimagining the city was a running theme across anarchist writing, too, from Bookchin's libertarian municipalism to crime thinks anarchy in the age of dinosaurs. Approaching the city as agents of creative disruption opened up a sort of urban tactical renaissance, borrowing much from environmental direct action and social movements abroad. Lockboxes, unarrest techniques, and the famed black block all rose to prominence during this time. Other creative interventions, too. Okay, let me tell you something else we did. On, I think it was, it was the Wednesday before this protest, we printed up a fake front page of the Washington Post. And it looked like the real Washington Post. It was called the Washington Pist. And um, we wrapped over 5,000 newspapers by fall, having a fleet of cars go out early in the morning, like teams, with quarters, and they went to the news boxes everywhere, like whole swaths of the city, every single news box, the papers were pulled out, and ones that had been wrapped to be put back, it was total fight club, it was like, it was like totally amazing. From here, take a right on 14th, and keep walking until you come to Florida Avenue. You'll pass V Street, then W. It's alphabetical. Back to you, Ray. Max is right. The whole urban reimagination thing was vital. The Reclaim the Streets group in London organized the Carnival Against Capital in June of 99, which is widely regarded as the precursor to Seattle. Oh, wow. I thought Seattle is where it all started. So, Ray, would you say that the Carnival Against Capital was the beginning of the anti-globalization movement? Mm, I wouldn't say that. Lots of people consider the start to be New Year's Day 94, when the Zapatistas rose up against NAFTA. It was a big deal, and it influenced the People's Global Action Network that was instrumental in Seattle. But there was already resistance to neoliberalism for years prior. In the late 80s, there was a significant struggle against a World Bank-sponsored dam in India, and the G7 summits have had tens of thousands of protesters since at least the early 90s. There was also a diversity of smaller, more focused campaigns that in one way or another were affected by global trade issues. Solidarity movements with East Timor and Tibetan independence, animal rights save the turtles campaigns, campus anti-sweatshop activism, you name it. With all these different strands, it's hard to find one point in history to call the start. But what is for sure is that the world debut of this movement of movements was the anti-WTO actions in Seattle, November of 99. This was a kind of anti-corporate big bang. The gravity of the WTO and all the different issues it touched brought 50,000 people from various causes in coalition with each other, which on the ground exploded into a mix of marches, sit-down blockades, targeted property destruction, and standoffs with the police. The meetings were successfully shut down, and the inspirational energy from this victory shot off in all directions, including plenty of mainstream press. 
60 Minutes did a whole special on the feared anarchists of Eugene, Oregon, to whom the targeted property destruction of the Black Bloc was attributed. Oh my god, Ray, that sounds incredible! Talk about being born too late. Oh, and remember, we're walking up to the corner of 14th and Florida. Don't worry, Max. History always makes these things sound cooler than they were. But everyone who was there says it was actually quite boring. Really? No way! Are you kidding me? Just listen to this one account from the streets that day. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be here right now. I love every one of you like a sister or a brother. There is nowhere in the world ever that I would rather be than where I am right now. There is nothing I would rather be doing than what I am doing right now. I would rather be out here than spend another fucking second in my car or at my job or watching TV. I don't think these cops can say that. I don't think those delegates can say that. I would rather eat more tear gas than any more of their fucking fast food. I would rather drink more pepper spray than any more of their fucking soft drinks. I would rather deal with that than accept the shit for another fucking second. And I would rather die living than continue to live dying. Almost as soon as the state of emergency was lifted and the National Guard had cleared out of Seattle, anti-capitalists turned their sights to D.C. for the IMF and World Bank meetings on April 16th, 2000, or A16. Um, A16, I, the, the immediate background is a whole bunch of us were in Seattle. I got f- fired from my real job. I was so happy. I left within a few days to go to Seattle. and I took a real job at the time because I was pregnant. I hadn't told anybody because I didn't want anybody to tell me not to go to Seattle. And then when we came back from Seattle, everybody was lit. And so we had, you know, a report back that brought out my memory. It was 100, maybe 200 people. I don't remember. It was a big, big meeting, bigger than we thought. There was a lot of energy there. People were fired up. So then we, that's when we launched the mobilization for global justice, leading to the World Bank IMF protests in the spring. When you get to the corner of Florida Avenue, take a right and walk to 1328 Florida. It's a white building that says the Manhattan You can't miss it. One of the mobilization for global justice's important tasks was establishing a convergence center where protesters coming to town and certainly a few undercover cops could go for food, information and the spokes councils to hash out the final action plans. Uh, A quick aside for the post-occupied generation. Much of the decision making in the anti-globalization movement was decidedly non-hierarchical, even beyond the explicitly anarchist groups. Participants were encouraged to form affinity groups, a concept borrowed from Spanish anarchists in the early 20th century. An affinity group is, well, a group of anyone from a few people to dozens. You come together on the basis of some shared, well, affinity. It could be a political idea you hold in common, some level of risk you're all comfortable with, a tactic you all want to use, whatever brings you and your crew together. A spokes council is a meeting of one spoke from each affinity group, Spoke being short for spokesperson, or like the spokes in a wheel, depending on how you interpret it. Some spokes councils are more representational, where the spokes are empowered by their affinity groups to make certain kinds of decisions with other spokes, almost always by consensus. Other spokes councils are more like clearinghouses of information on what different groups are planning or thinking or needing, and from there, affinity groups can freely cluster up and work together. Both kinds of spokes councils recognize that decision-making and initiative take place at all different levels, 
and in a variety of ways that can't be encompassed by a single decision-making body. <sighs> wow, Ray, what a mouthful. Have you been holding that in or something? Yeah, sorry to spit that out at you, but the endless General Assembly people's mic rants during the Occupy movement left me with a bad taste in my mouth. By now you should be in front of the Manhattan Building at 1328 Florida. This is where the E-16 Convergence Center was. But walk a few steps to its right so you can look down the alleyway. Yeah, so I think if you stood there, you would see a steady stream of people going into the bottom of the Manhattan Laundry Building where all these other meetings and, you know, I think most of the stuff was around back. Bikes. Puppets, bikes. Oh, my God, right, we had a huge bike thing. So you walk down the alley, you would think something was happening behind the building. I mean, it was just tons of people going in and out, all the usual types, people in black, people in flowery dresses, you know, the whole works, right? It turns out that one disadvantage of doing all your preparations in one place is the vulnerability of police raiding it. With just one day to go and thousands of people flooding into town, police did just that. When they shut the block, when they shut the building down, they actually shut the block down between 13th and 14th and pissed off the neighborhood to the nth degree. Um, partly because, you know, they had been asking for years for certain kinds of help, and the reason they gave for shutting us down was fire code violations. And they were like, ain't no way that's the case because we've been trying to get help from the fire department for years. This is not that. It's somewhere else. And the ANC, the Advisory Neighborhood Commission woman, was totally on our side. And then they brought in some big dumpsters and threw away everything. And then, of course, we got stuff out of the dumpsters, everything from beautiful organic tomatoes to the puppets. And, you know, it was a scene. Despite police interference, we still took to the streets on April 16th. The numbers were similar to Seattle, about 10,000 blockading intersections, largely organized through the Mobilization for Global Justice and Direct Action Network. The big unions and NGOs brought in about 30,000 for a rally at the Ellipse by the White House. Yeah, and they, all they did was go to the Ellipse. Right, right, right. And I didn't even go. Nobody went. I think the unions were like, we can't outright support the direct action, but what we will do is have a union march nearby and let, let our members peel off. And a lot of them did. A lot of them were like, yeah, I want to get in there with the Black Bloc. Whereas the Black Bloc in Seattle had about 100 people, the Black Bloc at A16 numbered well over 1,000. Some voices from the streets that day. People dressed in black with their faces covered. And that's a scary image for them, you know? And... But if you took, like, two minutes to talk to any one of those people, you would realize that they are intelligent. They, you know, they care about what's going on or they wouldn't put themselves on the line. We don't want to just shut down the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, we want to shut down government in general, full stop. Uh, we believe that uh, capitalism can't be reformed. Mobilization, global justice, all the people that, uh, that are down in Washington have consents to make a lot of space for different um, tactics and different politics. I know we can all work together and the coalitions that we form are going to change this world. Making space for a diversity of tactics is one of the most important innovations that the anti-globalization movement has to offer. Disagreements over tactics don't mean we have to open ourselves up to divide and conquer strategies from the media and police. We can still coordinate and communicate while acting autonomously. So um, there was a lot of outreach to the Black Bloc and to talking, uh, and there was a lot of community meetings and all kinds of stuff because we, first of all, we were very clear that we weren't going to publicly uh, diss any 
tactics. Like, it was all the fault of the World Bank IMF. Like, if they said, why are you being violent? It would be like, it's not our issue. Everybody's pissed off because the World Bank and IMF is structurally violent. But a diversity of tactics wasn't just a cynical calculus on how to organize. There were moments of true harmony between the Black Bloc and other disobedience. While we play you an interview describing this harmony of tactics, go ahead and walk into the alley, aiming for the far corner of the building on your left-hand side. You know, I had been this person who had ascribed to pacifism and very much nonviolence, and your body kicks in and says, someone is trying to hurt me and I need to fight back. Like, uh, I remember fighting that instinct in that moment. And I am forever grateful to the Black Bloc because we had put a call out saying the police have arrived, they're hurting people, please come. And the Black Bloc just marched in and just by the sheer force of them arriving, their bodies moved the police back from where they were and away from us and away from the people who were seated trying to maintain that intersection. It was wonderful timing. Um, And so I just remember being so grateful that I didn't have to leave my post because these people had taken a position. That's how our intersection was able to maintain for many more hours after that. Once here in the little intersection at the back of the alley, look at the corner of the Manhattan building. There should be a kind of right angle pipe thing hanging at about eye level. Hopefully no one's taken it down, but most likely it's still there because these things are built to last. This is a lockbox. Go ahead and put your arm inside. Feel that pin in the middle? That's what you lock your wrist to. It's pretty difficult to move a line of people locked together like this. And while police couldn't care less about spilling defenseless people's blood, they can be camera shy about it. And sawing through a pipe with someone's hand locked inside is quite a spectacle. You can learn more about how to safely and effectively utilize lockboxes by checking out the Blockades and Lockdowns recipe and Crime Thinks Recipes for Disaster, an anarchist cookbook. Okay, you can walk back out of the alley now. Some might interpret the rise of the Black Bloc as anarchism itself growing in influence, which it was. But anarchists were also involved in the Convergence Center, pirate radio, food, legal observing, soft blockades, independent media, radical cheerleading, almost every aspect of the organizing. Well, save for the union rally. Although, even there, there was probably some anarchist whose day job was at an NGO and couldn't get out of her work obligations to hit the streets. Anarchists were the best activists in the anti-globalization movement. And the anarchists didn't always wear black, and they didn't always wear masks. They were often wearing rainbow and colorful stuff, and they were fairies, and they were... It was like all kinds of different people, you know? These people that were willing to, like, bend the law or even break the law to do creative actions, and... Um, money did not run the organization. I think the anarchists were really, I guess they were really involved in the, running the conversion center, the meetings. The people who understood the process the best were the anarchists because it was really coming from you know, direct, a direct democracy kind of spokesmodel model. And there was sort of like a fashion statement being made by the black bloc. You know, it was like they dressed in black, they represented like this new thing, even though it wasn't that new, but in the minds of the media, it was very new. And it was kind of scary, and it was also kind of seducing. In 2000, a quick way to annoy any anarchist was to ask if they were a member of the Black Bloc, to which the response invariably was, the Black Bloc is a tactic, not a group. While true, 
The Black Bloc made contributions that went beyond the streets. Being tactically and organizationally distinct, plenty of people who wouldn't normally read a book on anarchism would read the Black Bloc's calls to action to find out what to expect. So despite anarchists being involved in almost every aspect of the organizing, the Black Bloc was one of the main ways that anarchist ideas as such were in conversation with the rest of the movement. For example, take this excerpt from the A16 Revolutionary Anti-Capitalist Bloc Statement. We feel that calls for national protectionism and national sovereignty pit the working class of each nation against each other. We feel especially that the stance taken by some of organized labor and many left reformists is not a stance of international solidarity and that it is not the most effective stance for advancing the cause of the international working class. We believe in internationalism and the globalization of our struggle against all of capitalism, regardless of political borders, and we work towards a genuine international unity, which will one day lay the basis for a global social revolution. Damn. That part about protectionist and nationalist stances against neoliberalism seems especially prescient now that the president is someone who criticizes NAFTA at the same time that he's calling undocumented Mexicans rapists and criminals. 20 years ago, to criticize NAFTA meant you were in solidarity with poor Mexicans and undocumented migrants. While A16 did not totally shut down the meetings, it did confirm Seattle was not a fluke. We could mobilize tens of thousands of people. We could establish autonomous infrastructure like pirate radio, medic teams, postering squads, you name it. In Seattle, the writing on the wall read, we are winning. But at A16, it went a step further with failure is impossible. With a circle A, of course. All right, show's over, folks. The building's been raided and you're not getting any of your patchouli puppets back. Max? Are you pretending to be a cop? Sorry, what I mean is, run fast, comrades, the old world is behind you. Don't more the Convergence Center, organize. Is that better, Ray? Uh, sure. Great. Turn now so the Manhattan Alley is on your left. Look at the lamppost next to the trash can. See that poster on its base? In the weeks leading up to any big anti-globalization demo, all the lampposts would have posters like this wheat pasted on them, advertising the mobilization, most of them designed by the same artist as this one, Mike Flugenock. You'll see more of his stuff in the scrapbook later. So with the Manhattan Alley on your left, walk back down Florida Avenue the way you came. We're going to cross the street twice when you get to the corner up here with 14th Street. You want to end up on the corner with the 7-Eleven. That black block call reminded me of something I want to clear up. Anti-globalization isn't a very good name for the movement we're talking about. Of course, we weren't against having aspects of our lives bound up with those of people in other parts of the globe. But if globalization means being part of the same global conveyor belt where wage slaves in the U.S. sell the products assembled by sweatshop slaves in Honduras, made with cotton harvested under slave conditions in Pakistan, no thank you. We had our own values we wanted to globalize. Resistance to capitalism, solidarity, self-determination. So why do we keep saying anti-globalization? Well, in our eyes, the alternatives are just as imperfect. Anti-corporate globalization is pretty good, but also pretty long to say. The global justice movement is popular for movement sympathizers. But justice is kind of like rights. As anarchists, we don't want some authority to guarantee either. We want self-determination for all and freedom from all authority. We could just call it the anti-capitalist movement, but honestly, it wasn't for everybody, as much as we would have preferred it to be. Anyway, we don't have a big bone to pick about the name that fits best. We just wanted to explain that we've chosen the one we use critically. 
Once you're on the corner with the 7-Eleven, keep walking down Florida Avenue in the same direction. We're going to end up on the corner of 15th and Florida, or 15th and W. It's kind of a crazy intersection. You'll see. After A16, the Summit protest model from Seattle and D.C. took a world tour, growing in militancy with each stop. September 2000, Prague, Czech Republic. 50,000 converge on the IMF meetings, interrupting the final day's program. Yeah, just that's, you know, Prague was a game changer. Uh, for a lot of us, it was definitely an eye-opening experience to see the diversity of tactics. Like, that was the biggest, for me, the walk away from that place, was different groups, and they just came together, and they shut down the, the World Bank IMF meetings. So it was, it was pretty spectacular. April 2001, Quebec City, Canada. 20,000 hit the streets to protest the Free Trade Area of the Americas, or FTAA, which would expand NAFTA to 30 more countries. Militant protests tear down a portion of the security perimeter, delaying the meetings. What we saw in Canada was that there was a group like the Mobilization for Global Justice, but organized explicitly under anti-capitalist, anti-authoritarian principles organized under a commitment to a diversity of tactics and thus wasn't like bogged down by these outdated conversations about um, so-called nonviolence principles and things like that. And so when we saw that, we're like, wow, Canada, Canada felt so much more radical because what we're actually talking about with IMF, World Bank, FTA, WTO, we're actually talking about like fundamental problems with the, the economic system, not that just these isolated institutions. So why aren't we naming it? And it was so inspiring to see this broad-based mobilization that attracted tens of thousands of people. Hundreds of people were organizing for it on a local level in Montreal and Quebec City. They were just like, yeah, we're the anti-capitalist convergence. That's what this is. July 2001, Genoa, Italy. 100,000 turn out to protest the G8 summit. A young anarchist, Carlo Giuliani, is shot dead by police is we showed videos of Genoa in D.C., and it really radicalized people, but also scared people. Carlo's death was a sobering reminder of how much force the state still had in reserve should our threat to capitalism continue to grow. But it wasn't paralyzing. It's not hyperbole to say that after the police killed Carlo, people were preparing for battle, with the next showdown being the World Bank and IMF meetings in September of 2001, right here in D.C., the thing that was, we were certain of was that the World Bank IMF protests in D.C. post what turned out to be 9-11 would have been the biggest thing the U.S. has ever seen as far as the number of people willing to throw down. Remember, we're heading to the corner of 15th and W, but the intersection is weird. You want to follow the sidewalk you're on as it bends right until you're at a crosswalk facing a park. When you're standing in the right spot, there'll be an uphill street on your right. Building on relationships from Quebec and the Black Bloc at A16, anarchists in D.C. formed the Anti-Capitalist Convergence. Mobilization for Global Justice was happened first. And then I think, I, in a way, not exactly, but in a way, like, I feel like Anti-Capitalist Convergence, a little bit came out of that, of people being, like, wanting a more, yeah, more radical space. There was all there was this need that felt like because people who had more radical politics, people who didn't want to be beholden to unions or um, nonprofit funders uh, or even work with the police or other existing you know power structures, we were feeling like there wasn't really a space for us. But the anti-capitalist convergence in D.C. got together right after Quebec City, April 2001. 
So the anti-capitalist convergence of Montreal is what inspired their principles and the way they organized is what really inspired us to create the anti-capitalist convergence in D.C. We started to organize anti-capitalist convergence for the fall meetings of the World Bank and IMF, and which would go on to be pretty largely derailed because of 9-11, but still happened. Okay, hopefully by now you're on the corner of 15th and W. If you're down for a stroll in the park, hold tight for a second. If you're doing the stair-free version of this tour, your detour begins here. Head up the hill on your right. That's 15th Street. You can either wait for us in front of the Ecuadorian embassy at 15th and Euclid, or from there, enter the park, turn left, and go all the way to the lookout at the far end of the park. You're in the right spot when you're at a banister in front of a statue of Joan of Arc on a horse. We'll meet you there. If you're not avoiding stairs, then go ahead and cross the street. See those five curvy little steps leading into the park? Go up them and keep on the walkway parallel to the street. Stop when you get to the four bull pillar urn things on top of the stone banister to your left. You'll know you're there because across the street is an awning that says 2112 New Hampshire, even though you're on W Street, which then turns into Florida. Yeah, sometimes D.C. directions don't make a lot of sense. Welcome to Malcolm X Park. Remember that legacy of Black Struggle I mentioned? This is part of it. The official name of the park is Meridian Hill, but during a rally in 1969, Angela Davis called for the park to become a symbol of black pride. The Malcolm X Park name really began to stick when the annual African Liberation Day celebrations started using the park in the 70s, and thousands of black folks from around the country would arrive and ask locals where Malcolm X Park was. With the four stone birdbath bowl things and the awning on your left, there's a set of stairs on your right. Head up those stairs and just keep going straight back until you get to a giant wall with a banister on top of it. There's a part where the stairs curve to the left some, but after that, just keep climbing the little staircases in the same direction. So, of course, when the anti-capitalist convergence would do direct action trainings here or the mobilization for global justice had rallies or free concerts, they didn't call it Meridian Hill. They called it Malcolm X Park. I mean, Malcolm X Park is the hub. Like, Malcolm X Park is the place that people meet. I mean, that's like, if you're going to have a movement, you're going to go and you're going to protest. Malcolm X Park is like one of the most essential places of power in D.C. And it's, it's like the people's power. It's pretty cool. An important part of the life of the park is the Malcolm X drummers and dancers. Weather permitting, you can find their drum circle here every Sunday from 3 to 9. That's them playing under my voice. During the anti-globalization years, some of the people in the drum circle were also involved in the Rhythm Workers Union, a global justice drum corps with a souped-up baby buggy outfitted with drums that seemed to accompany basically every march I ever went on. While we were doing the research for this episode, there were so many colorful little stories that give flavor to the whole history of this movement that we couldn't include all of them. One that is maybe a little bit random is that there were a lot of radical marching bands during this time, and it was kind of important. So you had groups like the Rhythm Workers Union, but you also had more anarchisty militant marching bands, like the Infernal Noise Brigade and Cackalack Thunder. Here's a little sample of the Infernal Noise Brigade at a WTO protest in Mexico.
Now, militant marching bands aren't militant because the beats that they're drumming are more, I don't know, tough or something. But they were right there on the front lines when the tear gas was coming down, putting out a beat to keep us on our feet while the police were bringing the heat. The Rhythm Workers Union got formed ahead of the World Bank IMF protests scheduled for September 2001. It's hard to overstate how significant these demonstrations were poised to be. Estimates circulated of 100,000 converging. Even before September, the mobilization was already achieving victories. The IMF and World Bank announced that they would scale their meetings back from a week to just two days. And the U.S. announced that it would not fit the entire security bill. The IMF and World Bank would have to pay $16 million out of their own pockets. Wow. $16 million. That's a lot of windows. Once you're at the giant wall with the stone banister on top, take a right and walk along the wall. Then, there'll be a big staircase on your left. Take those stairs up to the top so that you're overlooking the city. There was one more thing I wanted to say about the anti-capitalist convergence. Although founded by anarchists, their principles and approach appeal beyond just self-identified anarchists. I, you know, identified as a socialist, as a revolutionary socialist, and identified as a Marxist. But I, I felt most at home with my anarchist comrades and still do. You know, I came out of a bad experience with the, with the sectarian left. I, I found organizing, that organizing with anarchists uh, was more freeing, was more uh, liberating. There was people in the mobilization for global justice um, who supported what the ACC was doing. And there were certain people who went to meetings for both. And I think there were some people that like were frustrated that they had to go to two sets of meetings for their political involvement to be like whole or complete. The two groups weren't completely at odds with each other. I think they were working in parallel. And I think there there were reasons and and like legitimate reasons for MGJ organizers to want to take certain approaches. So... Once you're at the top of the stairs, go to the banister across from the statue of Joan of Arc on a horse and look out over the city. On a clear night, you can see the capital to your left, all the cranes of gentrification, too. Straight ahead, the Washington Monument looms high in the distance. Once the world's tallest building, it's still the tallest building in D.C. From everywhere high up in the city, you can see the great big national phallus with its all-seeing eye blinking away through the night reminding us of America's patriarchal mission to dominate the world. I guess folks who lived here eventually got accustomed to that kind of thing around them every day, but it always boggled my mind. I grew up in a smallish town a few hours south of here. When I got involved in anarchist organizing, D.C. was the place to go for actions and conferences, not to mention political punk shows and festivals. Being from out of town, plenty of things amazed me about the city. On the one hand, I'd heard that there were a dozen different anarchist collective houses in the Columbia Heights neighborhood alone, entirely different crews of anarchists who barely knew of each other. This seemed incredible to me, coming from a place where every radical knew each other and a town would be lucky to have one or two functioning collectives. On the other hand, D.C. also had the densest concentration of enemy institutions I'd ever seen. It never ceased to freak me out how I'd be biking downtown, stop to tie my shoe, look up, and realize that I was in front of the IMF headquarters, where bureaucrats from the suburbs designed the details of third-world misery. 
Or I'd pop out of the metro and end up walking past the FBI headquarters, full of agents working out new ways to surveil and repress us. Your average march passed so many important targets that my head would spin. Just about every institution that had ever outraged me had some kind of office in D.C., crunching the numbers to buy and sell our world, or plotting to invade or subdue the places that couldn't be controlled. Now turn around and imagine this park full of activity in stark contrast to the faceless, oppressive institutions downtown. Rambunctious troublemakers practicing on arrest techniques, food not bombs serving up warm latkes, bands playing, speakers speaking, trainers training, puppets, banners, literature tables, circles of friends. To an out-of-town activist who just took a tour de horror of all the evil monuments and agencies downtown, happening upon such a scene here might have been refreshing, or it might have been bewildering. In any case, for anarchists in D.C., we felt an obligation to sow seeds of rebellion right here in the belly of the beast. Yeah, no, I think we like very much articulated that. Like we felt like we had a duty and we kind of, yeah, I mean, I think we kind of did it. But, like even were charged with it by people in other cities and other countries and stuff. Like thinking about how people see the U.S. as that site, like think, just thinking about how important it was that we were like having a visible resistance and like how important it is for that to happen. Like I think particularly in DC and New York and just as somebody who's traveled internationally, like I really also saw how important that was. I went to Brazil. It was like, I actually went for the world social forum. The first thing that happened to me is I got in this taxi and and I was talking to the driver and he was like, what is up with Americans? And I was like, I hear you, but go on. <laughs> what do you mean? And he was like, as a country, like our deal is soccer. As a country, your deal is empire and war and like, and, um, you know, this is just like random taxi driver. But I don't know, for me, like that really. Turn around and look out on the city again. What our comrade just said about people from all over the world seeing D.C. and New York as sites of oppressive power is definitely true. Those of us in the anti-globalization movement felt that we were the central protagonists fighting for a new world to come, but we would soon be upstaged. Standing here on September 11th, 2001, you would have been able to see the black smoke billowing up from the Pentagon and darkening the horizon. We were organizing uh, for uh, another World Bank meeting, right? It was supposed to happen. And then, and then, and then 9-11 happened. So this... So the, the, the demonstrations were called off. In Seattle, I think people usually say that there were 10,000 people risking arrest and 30,000 people in the streets, including the labor unions. And in D.C. for 2001, it would have been at least the other way around. We think we would have had 30 to 40,000 risking arrest and, you know, some other numbers in the streets. So that would have been really, really something. And the loss of that was not only did, did 9-11 kill the movement in many ways, but the loss of that particular moment in history is really, really uh, too bad. Yeah, I don't know. It just, it really did, like, take the air out of the whole, like, anti-globalization movement. And I mean, like, very, yeah, very directly. Like, we had expected things to be huge, huge, huge. And then it was just like... <laughs> the immediate reaction of the not-for-profits and the NGOs was to pull out and to leave it to the quote-unquote peace groups. It became almost a waste of time to try to work with unions and liberal Democrats after September 11th. 
they, they stop thinking critically. They start thinking like nationalists and they start thinking about war. This is a really interesting like thing about the, the difference between the anti-capitalist convergence and the mobilization for global justice. Part of the pro, pro, one of the problems that became like more and more an issue with the mobilization for global justice is that you had these like sort of big power brokers and social movements like big unions and NGOs speaking for tens of thousands of people that were made up these movements. And so when 9-11 happened, a lot of the heads of these bigger organizations that made up the mobilization for global justice said, that's it, protests are canceled. Yeah, which was so weird because it's like, it just, I don't know. It's so just clearly different than, you know, terrorism against random groups of people who happen to be in the same building or whatever, you know, but yeah, I don't know. It just seems so clearly different. Marching, killing people. (laughs) How those two things could be equated is kind of... MGJ called off the protests. The IMF World Bank meetings were either canceled or significantly reduced in terms of what ended up happening. Um, but the anti-capitalist convergence, we still organized. And, and we um, they were anti-capitalist protests against the IMF and the World Bank and also against war and imperialism. A lot of the people who were there helping to organize were very young and inexperienced and fair-weather activists. And so we weren't prepared for the crackdown. And so many of the younger or less experienced activists. I mean, frankly, in the U.S., that's mostly what it's been, right? We're going to enter now another time where people need to be really careful about how we deal with resistance. You know, we're stuck. We, You know, in, in D.C., right, we had curfew and people, we had to cancel meetings and people were stuck in front of their televisions, a lot of them, and they just, you know, swallowed hook, line, and sinker, the fear-mongering that was coming out of the mainstream media. That experience actually served us in supporting people in Paris, um, and at the COP protest recently, where you had this horrific series of, you know, the bombings and the killings, and we could say to them, hang in there, you know, you can still do something within, maybe it's different parameters, but don't abandon the ship. This is more important now than it was even before, that people are heard. Because I think in hindsight, some of those other people who backed out realized that that didn't serve anybody. But people were totally flipped out. So... It turns out anti-capitalists in D.C. have a lot to say about September 11th. Liberals, NGOs, and unions may have been scared to protest afterwards, but for anarchists and others with a systemic analysis of the state and capitalism, it was a time to redouble our efforts. And I think a lot of us felt like, well, actually, now this is actually a time where we need to be really critical and we need to be in the streets and we need to be as active as possible because if people aren't engaged, the government can, can do a lot right now and get away with a lot. With many of the liberals and fairweather activists gone, the next anti-globalization convergence in D.C. would see explicitly anarchist and anti-capitalist groups taking on a bigger chunk of the organizing than ever before. Turns so that the Washington Monument is to your back, and you're facing the statue of Joan of Arc. Go ahead and start walking to the far end of the park, using the path on your right. We'll be exiting back to the street at the far right corner of the park. The next big mobilization against the World Bank and IMF came in the fall of 2002. The recently formed anti-capitalist convergence decided not just to play a supporting role for someone else's mobilization, but instead lay the groundwork to support a whole militant day of action with explicitly anti-capitalist and anti-authoritarian messaging. It was called the People's Strike. 
I was the one of the organizers of the people's strike. That's where they arrested the 600-some activists. You know, anarchists where, uh, especially in D.C., in D.C. where NGOs copped out after 9-11 because of their funding and worries about political repercussions if they continue to act after 9-11. But I saw anarchists as the most principled uh, at the time uh, that were continuing to fight the good fight, continuing to take direct action, not uh, buying the whole police. You know, the police came up with this new thing that they're actually protecting democracy, they're protecting the demonstrators, and that's why they need to stop demonstrating because it'll provide a space for terrorists to hide within within uh, the demonstrations. When we created the idea for the people strike, the idea was to to do all this on during the chunk of time that the the meetings were happening, um, but on a weekday, so we could interrupt business as usual, try to shut down the city. It was kind of convention for the more mainstream like establishment groups to always want to have their protests on a Saturday or Sunday. But I think for more critical organizers, we were troubled by the idea that that, that kind of scheduling logic on, like, on its own would make your protest completely symbolic. And for those of us who are actually interested in trying to question the legitimacy of these meetings actually happening at all, we wanted to try to shut them down. And and so we felt like we should be holding protests during the business week. The big thing everyone remembers about the people strike is the mass arrests. Over 600 people, including journalists and ill-fortune civilians, were, quote, preemptively arrested. This is about six months before Iraq was, quote, preemptively invaded. In many ways, the massive arrest didn't matter too much. The organizing had been done in such a way that capitalism as usual had indeed been disrupted. Leading up to the people strike, the anti-capitalist convergence held press conferences where they boldly declared their intention to shut down capitalism as thoroughly as possible by calling for autonomous actions to take place throughout the day. The anarchist website Infoshop.org, very prominent back then, published a kind of jokey anarchist scavenger hunt for the weekend. 75 points for puncturing a police car tire. 300 points for an active street theater. 400 points for pieing a corporate executive or World Bank delegate in the face. Vegan pies preferred. The list scandalized local police and became the center of several stories about the scary protesters coming to town to wreck everything. From the park's exit on 15th, cross the street to the building on the other side. That's the Ecuadorian embassy. This just happens when you're in D.C. You turn around and suddenly you're in front of some country's diplomatic mission. Keep this in mind if you plan on burning a cop car or something. Maybe they'll give you asylum. Just kidding. As anarchists, we know that our safety does not reside in maneuvers between states, but in our own solidarity and good security practices. Speaking of which, we do not encourage you to burn any cop cars. Mm-mm. No, sir. That would be un-American. Now turn to face the intersection of 15th and Euclid. Start walking up 15th Street. We'll be walking on this street for four blocks until we get to Columbia Road. Scared of the havoc the media promised the people strike would wreak, many businesses and offices just called the day off. 
The federal government, D.C.'s biggest employer, anticipated an unusually high volume of day-off requests. They also encouraged those who could to work from home. On the day of, downtown was a ghost town. But not much happened besides the mass arrests, a roving bicycle blockade, and just one broken window. Citibank, 300 points. Despite the hundreds arrested, the anti-capitalist convergence declared victory at their press conference. The city was shut down. There was no ambiguity about the anti-capitalist and anti-authoritarian principles behind the action. And even the mass arrests led to new friendships and organizing relationships. We didn't even know that years later, we would each win thousands of dollars from lawsuits resulting from the illegal preemptive arrests, not to mention new legal restrictions on policing in D.C. that are still in place today. The People's Strike was the last major victory we could claim in this movement. The final showdown in what we would call the anti-globalization era was November 2003 in Miami against the FTAA, the same expansion of NAFTA that was fought in Quebec City. A simplistic history of this movement could be told through the names of the protest documentaries. After each mobilization, the local indie media chapter would team up with other filmmakers and release a documentary on the protest itself and the issues behind it. Some of these can be streamed for free on our website, crimethink.com. One out of Seattle was Breaking the Spell, referring to how a broken window could dispel the illusion that capitalist normalcy was inevitable. A16's documentary was called Breaking the Bank, obviously referring to abolishing the IMF and World Bank. Miami's documentary was named after the overwhelming, brutal police strategy used against protesters, the Miami model. This really was the upshot of the anti-FTAA mobilization in 2003. We had seen raids, surveillance, and police violence in the streets before, but this was next level. A giant metal fence surrounded the summit's perimeter, with rubber bullet snipers posted atop. Groups of eight or more people needed a permit to congregate publicly, and a broad range of items were banned, notably, quote, passive weapons, like shields or lockboxes. It was the first time I ever saw cops use a taser. The police were aggressive even in their public relations, demonizing protesters on the nightly news for weeks leading up to the protest. At the same time that the police in Miami were equipped with new weapons and new anti-protest laws, we were at our least organized. The Iraq war started earlier that year and split organizers' energy without bringing new people into the anti-globalization movement. Fissures that existed expanded into full-on divisions. In Seattle, Turtles and Teamsters were in the streets together, but at the Spokes Council in Miami, the unions sent a young, enthusiastic representative to ask that the autonomous protesters, quote, show solidarity by not holding actions during the massive AFL-CIO march in the afternoon. As anarchists, spokes councils and solidarity are important tools in our toolbox. But many of the tactics and language we use without anti-authoritarian values behind them can easily be appropriated and used against us. Suffice it to say that we are suspicious of any logic that says inaction is the right course, especially when the whole environment of surveillance and repression is trying to persuade us of that. Hey, before reaching Harvard Street, See that long brick building on the other side with the black fence around it? That's All Souls Unitarian Church. They hosted street medic trainings and other workshops for global justice protesters in the early 2000s. Okay, keep walking up 15th until the corner with Columbia Road. Ensuring that there were no militant street actions during the Union March allowed the police to beat people during the morning, rest during the afternoon, and then do a full sweep of the city with tanks and tear gas once the Union members were back on their buses. 
lots of people got really hurt. And that was like a war zone. I mean, that was like, wow, it's going to the next level. You know, I felt like COINTELPRO was alive and well. I felt like the, the media war was on. The police chief would put a happy face on the whole situation, and we were being brutalized. But despite the overwhelming police force, there were still some small victories. All over the city, Miami residents would throw up the revolutionary fist or buy you a drink if they identified you as a protester. The first ever really, really free market took place in Miami, demonstrating a vision of an anti-capitalist economy based on gift giving and mutual aid. The really, really free market has spread across the world and is still a popular anarchist project today. And lastly, during the cops' evening sweep across the city, protesters retreated and built barricades. The rowdy crowd was eventually routed into Overtown, a historically black and impoverished ghetto. Leading up to the protests, a rumor had curiously circulated that we were paid protesters, and police told Overtown residents that they would turn a blind eye if they mugged us mostly white and pretty much all funny-looking protesters from out of town. But when Overtown residents saw that we were in open conflict with the police, they were incredibly generous in helping us hide out, navigate escapes from police lines, and some even expressed that if we could escalate the conflict, they would join in. Despite heartening gestures of solidarity like this, the overall result for Miami was demoralization. Our enemies quite literally beat us, our supposed allies in the unions and NGOs sold us out, and despite spectacular scenes of both resistance and police violence, the national news mentioned almost nothing about it, absurdly choosing to instead focus on a federal raid on Michael Jackson's ranch. Ugh. Once you're at the corner of 15th and Columbia, cross Columbia and take a right. Walk about a minute down the street until you see a big brick church with two arched red doors on your left. The address is 1459 Columbia Road. We'll meet you there. So was Miami the end of the anti-globalization movement? Certainly, the changes put into motion by 9-11 had fully set in by this point. And despite hundreds of thousands showing up to permitted, top-down organized anti-war marches, our capacity to organize autonomously and horizontally had dwindled. At the same time, it's not like the World Bank and IMF went away. Although David Graeber's essay, The Shock of Victory, offers some interesting theories on the underappreciated victories of the anti-globalization movement. The FTAA, for example, was never actually achieved. And of course, committed anarchists and anti-capitalists didn't just go away either. When sort of the anti-globalization movement slowed down it actually, I don't believe that it slowed down at all. In fact, I feel that people just went into more local work and they resurfaced again with the anti-war movement. They resurfaced again with the Occupy movement and they resurfacing again. The veterans of all these movements are in Standing Rock right now. Even when anti-globalization summit protests resurfaced in 2007 and 2009 in D.C., and with the downright inspiring resistance against the G20 meetings in Pittsburgh and Toronto in 2009 and 10, it wasn't the same moment as a decade earlier. We were fighting on new terrain. Once you're in front of the church at 1459 Columbia Road, stand in front of the two arched red doors. This is Casa del Pueblo. After the A16 Convergence Center raid, the final Action Spokes Council was moved here. This was also the site of the People Strike Convergence Center in 2002 but many people remember it foremost for the awesome punk shows that happened here. One of these was a counter-inaugural ball with Anti-Flag, the night of Bush's second inauguration in 2005. It was cold that day, 
But after getting charged by speeches from Iraq veterans against the war and some rebellious punk anthems, 200 punks poured out of these doors and took to the streets in a torchlit march, chanting, Bring the war home. The march went down Columbia Road into the Adams Morgan neighborhood, where participants dragged newspaper boxes into the streets and smashed the windows of a city bank, a McDonald's, and a police cruiser. Dozens of people were arrested, but the real setback came from divisive and bitter disagreements over the appropriateness of the confrontational tactics used that night. Despite support for the march coming from bands that played, veterans who spoke, and folks who themselves got arrested, certain well-known activists with an axe to grind even named the show's organizers online as responsible for the property destruction and mass arrests, effectively snitching out fellow comrades on police-monitored websites. There was something about the anti-war movement that changed things. Authoritarian communist front groups dominated the organizing. The protests were bigger, but more homogenizing. The attendance really was massive. In fact, the anti-war protests of February 15, 2003, are the largest day of protest in history, like human history. Yet it didn't seem to amount to much more than just marching in circles. It certainly didn't stop the war. While there had been debates about tactics in the anti-globalization movement, they had never gotten so divisive. The arguments and fallout from the anti-flag march showed that we were solidly in a new era, the anti-Bush years, and the participatory, horizontal organizing and diversity of tactics that prevailed in the anti-globalization movement was being lost to the past. Before we head out from here, I want to add one little thing. Ray and I might be godless anarchists, but progressive and radical churches have been a key part of anti-capitalist organizing in D.C. Churches like St. Stephen's and La Casa have lent a hand for decades and even offer affordable office space to radical groups. But something especially important about Casa del Pueblo is that in 1992, the anarchist pop band Chumbawamba played here on their North American tour, making it the closest thing to a church that actually caters to my religion. I get no Come on, Max. No one likes being proselytized to. If the people are going to come to understand the infallibility and sublime wonder of the Wumba, they'll have to find it on their own. Fair enough, Ray. Let's head back down Columbia to 15th Street, to the corner that we just came from. Then, take a right on 15th and keep walking. While much had changed between Seattle in 99 and the inauguration in 2005, there was one thing that hadn't. Punk still rocked. Maybe it sounds silly, but seriously, punk was a pretty important part of getting people educated, in touch with each other, and active in the streets, not to mention all sharing a good time together. Smartphones weren't a thing yet. Cell phones barely were. And for sure, the whole world was not yet cataloged on the internet the way it is now. To find a radical zine or information on an upcoming protest, or even the conversational opining you get nowadays from comment sections or tweets— you pretty much had to actually physically go somewhere where information was circulated on paper or by word of mouth. And a good punk show was a helpful and most importantly fun place to find all that. Of course, punk still exists. Punk will always exist. But the vibrancy of the scene back then was directly tied to that era's anti-capitalist movements. All right, old timer. Are you on the corner of 15th and Columbia yet? Turn right on 15th and walk to the corner of 15th and Irving to a large building with columns. There's something special about the way music spreads ideas. It's one thing to agree with an essay or a book, but it's another to get your new favorite song stuck in your head for days. 
the creative boundaries pushed by seeing an amazing band can imply a wider spectrum of possibility in other spheres of life. And music gets your body moving. Dancing together or organizing the logistics of a show gives you a sense of what it would be like to act together in other ways. In the late 90s, anarcho-punk bands like Os Rotten, Anti-Product, and Los Crudos toured through, screaming from the gut about the World Bank, corporate-sponsored ecocide, and all the other disastrous consequences of American neocolonialism. Touring bands also brought news of resistance in other parts of the country and spread flyers for upcoming mobilizations. Remember, this was before everyone was on the internet. Punk networks were integral to the communication between anarchist movements internationally. The Minneapolis-based anarcho-punk magazine Profane Existence collected reports of resistance from around the world. Squatting, riots, inspiring bands, new ideas. In fact, Profane Existence played a major role in bringing the Black Bloc to the U.S. First, by reporting on militant street protests in Europe, but specifically by advertising a new zine in the early 90s on the possibilities of such tactics in a North American context. Before you get to the corner of 15th and Irving, did you notice that building with the mural on the right? At 3043 15th Street, that's the Latin American Youth Center. Before they moved here, the building itself was squatted during the A16 weekend. In the days leading up to A16, lots of vacant buildings were squatted to house the masses of protesters arriving into town. As Ray will explain, this one was some particularly nice real estate for that weekend. When you get to the corner of 15th and Irving, Stand in front of the big columned building that says, Next Step Public Charter School. Positive Force, a local punk organization since the 80s, organized regular benefit shows for anti-capitalist and community causes. Local or nearby bands like Crispus Attics, Strike Anywhere, 1905, and Apolitical built a strong scene here and in DIY spaces, not just bars. Casa del Pueblo hosted the People Strike Welcome Center because anarchist punks in the anti-capitalist convergence had built up a relationship with them through years of organizing shows there. Another melting pot of DIY punk and radical politics was in this columned building, the Wilson Center. Max is right. Those squatters picked a pretty good location because during A16, this was like a second convergence center. There used to be a big set of stairs leading up to the columns with a big black fence around them. And if you were standing here on the day before A16, you'd see tons of people hanging on the stairs, coming in and out of the building, and banners and signs decorating the fence. Some important A16 preparations took place here, particularly the meetings for the revolutionary anti-capitalist bloc, aka the Black Bloc. But also, a lot of the stuff from the Convergence Center at the Manhattan Building was moved here when it got raided. The night before A16, Eric Drucker and Seth Tabachman held a multimedia art show that got demonstrators emotionally and spiritually ready to take the streets the following day. Just like Casa del Pueblo, the reason the Wilson Center was available during A16 was thanks to connections built through the punk scene. Punk was an important part of DC long before the anti-globalization era, and this is one place DC punk was born. Classic bands like Bad Brains, Minor Threat, Fugazi, you name it, They all played here throughout the 80s. Then the building was closed to shows for most of the 90s. At that time, the building was used as a youth drop-in by the Latin American Youth Center. In 1997, Fugazi approached them about doing the band's 10-year anniversary show here as a benefit for them. LAYC agreed, and the show inaugurated a new cycle of punk at the Wilson Center. But not just punk. 
for example, the anti-capitalist convergence would hold direct action trainings here. <sighs> I remember my first punk show at the Wilson Center. It blew my mind. It was a fundraiser for the protests against the FTAA summit in Quebec City. Before the last band played, a speaker educated the crowd on the issues behind the protest. Free trade, neocolonialism, capitalism. Even though I wasn't going to the protests themselves, it was the first time I felt like I was part of something. <sighs> then Strike Anywhere took the stage, and they were so good! I hadn't seen anything like that before. Kids going wild, reaching for the mic, and singing along. Their last song had this line in it that really summed up the spirit of the times. Just this sense that liberation was just around the corner. If only we didn't hold ourselves back. We build a window for the vision of a freedom we could reach. Will we smash it with the brick up? self defense Underground! America! 1999! God, in the literature, everywhere, tables and tables covered in zines about killing your TV and scamming the system, records with incendiary anarchist slogans on them, stuff you couldn't find in any store that I'd ever been to before. It was like Christmas came early, but the elves had overthrown Santa and taken over his workshop to produce stacks and stacks of back patches and seven inches and photocopy zines. Oh yeah, the literature tables. How could I forget? One of the staples of big DC punk shows at that time was the Infoshop Collective, who would later open up the Brian McKenzie Infoshop in 2003. They brought anarchist and radical books to shows long before you could find any of that stuff online. They were also one of the groups to endorse the Black Block Hall for A16. <sighs> I sure miss that project. Aw, Ray, let's get a move on before I get all teary-eyed. I wouldn't be the anarchist I am today if it weren't for those punk shows I used to see here. Yeah, same here, Max. If you want to know more about the Wilson Center and D.C. political punk history, check out the documentary Positive Force, More Than a Witness, available from PM Press. And for more on how the DIY punk scene supported the anti-globalization movement, check out the essay Do It Yourself and the Movement Beyond Capitalism in the book Constituent Imagination, available from AK Press. For our next directions, we want to remind you to follow the crosswalk signals. One, it's safer. But two, we've timed them with the narration. Facing 15th Street like you've just walked out of the Wilson Center, cross 15th, then cross 16th, and keep going along Irving until you get to Mount Pleasant Street and wait for us there. Mount Pleasant is a really interesting neighborhood, and where a lot of anarchists lived in the late 90s, early 2000s. But yeah, that was definitely where, like, meetings, definitely a lot of meetings, fundraisers, parties was, yeah. like, mostly happening in Mount Pleasant around that time. And there had been, you know, there were group houses. And there's a few group houses that had been there since the 60s. And, like, you know, and that had been either, like, like activist and punk houses. And that's where I lived at the first time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. When I first moved here. In the early 90s, this was one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country, with almost equal parts white, black, and Latino residents. Many of the Latino residents came here as refugees from the anti-communist dirty wars of the 1980s in Central America. The military dictatorships that so many fled from were backed by the United States government, and particularly one military school in Georgia called the School of the Americas. The SOA, now renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, trained U.S. allied military dictatorships in torture, disappearance, and a host of other brutal counterinsurgency tactics. Anti-SOA activism was an important counterpart to the anti-globalization movement. 
While the anti-globalization movement combated neocolonialism in the form of the velvet hand of the market, the anti-school of the Americas movement combated neocolonialism's iron fist of dictatorship and state terror. Once you get to the corner with Mount Pleasant Street, take a look around. During a Mount Pleasant Cinco de Mayo celebration in 1991, police shot Daniel Enrique Gomez in the chest, leaving him paralyzed. The next two nights saw looting, burning, and street battles with police up and down this street, mostly led by young Latinos and Latinas. The result was some reforms from the city, like police not being able to inquire about one's immigration status, but also more attention in general paid to initiatives from the Latino community. This is part of the reason why when Fugazi played their 10-year anniversary at the Wilson Center in 97, they wanted it to be a benefit for the Latin American Youth Center. Go ahead and take a left on Mount Pleasant and walk down until it comes to a weird point with 16th Street. Maybe you notice that the old Wilson Center is now a charter school. This school is also run by the Latin American Youth Center and has even hosted some positive force shows in the last few years. But not all the charter schools in D.C. are as community-oriented as this one. In the early 2000s, D.C. underwent an aggressive school privatization scheme. Along with closing the General Hospital and a number of homeless shelters, this was one way that D.C. was imposing the same neoliberal policies that the World Bank and IMF had been pushing on third world countries for decades. I'm one of those people that was involved in the anti-capitalist movement and an anti-globalization movement that saw the privatization of public schools as a thing to go after. When you talked about anti-globalization connecting with the fight against the privatization of schools, the first thing that comes to mind is Walmart. Walmart is, what, the top corporation in the world, but Walmart is the corporation that has put in the most money, in the case of D.C., into uh, charter schools. In my time here, D.C. public schools have been seen, not entirely, but by and large, as a scandal, like factories for failure. Clearly, there were major problems. I mean, illegal drugs, and particularly crack cocaine, when you start talking the mid-1980s, and the terrible violence that comes. It's in that situation that you can argue for radical measures, and in these cases, radical free market measures, If you make the argument and you can convince enough people that there is a crisis, you can use that as a way to enact policies that in non-emergency circumstances would never be allowed. Naomi Klein has talked about this in the shock doctrine. The Democratic Party was actually most active both here and in New Orleans in pushing this agenda through. In New Orleans, their dreams came true with Katrina because Katrina was, in essence, gentrification and fast forward. When you get to this weird triangular tip of sidewalk at Mount Pleasant and 16th Street, cross the street twice so that you end up in that little park. Walk through the park to the opposite corner at Harvard and Columbia. Not all charter schools in D.C. are cynical, for-profit ventures. The one in the old Wilson Center run by the Latin American Youth Center is community-oriented, And there are plenty of others that continue the legacy of Afrocentric, non-colonialist education that goes back at least as far as SNCC's new school of Afro-American thought in the 60s. But the privatization of schools made education in D.C. more market-based in general. Perhaps the creepiest example of what could happen with school privatization is the Marriott Hospitality Charter School. 
If that sounds like the Marriott Hotel took over a school and turned it into a boot camp for how to serve rich people, it's because that's exactly what it was. Students had required internship hours in the hospitality industry, and despite millions of dollars of investment from big hotel chains, this school was reportedly lacking in educational materials for its first few years. They thankfully relinquished their charter a couple of years ago. School privatization was a factor in U.S.-backed neoliberalism abroad. To hear one case of school privatization and resistance, check out episode 29 on anarchism in Chile. Unfortunately, the parallels between neoliberalism abroad and gentrification in D.C. don't stop there. Another important local struggle in the early 2000s was fighting the closure of D.C. General Hospital. By now, you should be at the other end of this little park, on the corner of Harvard and Columbia. Cross Harvard, then immediately cross again and walk along Columbia away from 16th Street. We're heading to a bookstore called The Potter's House at 1658 Columbia Road. D.C. General was the only public hospital in the city until it was privatized and closed in 2001. The result was an immediate spike in preventable deaths due to overcrowding at other hospitals. Seth Tabachman wrote a moving comic about this called Ambulance Ride. At this time, the AIDS rate in D.C. was literally at severe epidemic proportions, affecting black men over all other demographics. It's not hard to see how anti-capitalists would make the connection between the struggle to keep D.C. General open and ACT UP activists demanding that the World Bank lower the cost of AIDS drugs in Africa. And the city's assault on the poor didn't end there. Over the next several years, despite local campaigns and resistance, the city went on to close several homeless shelters and tear down whole neighborhoods of low-income housing, while at the same time investing money in new buildings like the convention center and the baseball stadium to take their place. That baseball stadium was particularly convenient for the city. They got rid of a whole low-income gay neighborhood that way. If it sounds oxymoronic for a government to spend money on implementing neoliberal policies, it's in fact pretty consistent with actual existing neoliberalism. In practice, governments don't just let the market do its thing, but orient their spending to attract exploitation, excuse me, investment. This really illustrates the capitalist solution to poverty. Have an epidemic AIDS rate in your city? Maybe a bunch of poor people who aren't making your city investment friendly. Don't spend money on their neighborhoods or schools or health. Just take those away from them and drive them out of the city. Who cares what happens to their lives? They're poor. Whether by the iron fist of dictatorship or the velvet glove of the market, capitalists are murderers. The closing of D.C. General was a really big issue. Um, That's still terrifying, like what's happened to D.C. General to this day. Like it's this complete, you know, example of how the city is just not taking care of a large portion of the city that needs the help the most. So, but, you know, you did have a lot of things around like homes, not jails. You had this um, definitely thing about homelessness and you know, certain local issues, especially with, like, you know, we've had some pretty crappy mayors. At that time period, it was, like, Mayor Williams. And he's just his, like, corporate sellouts of D.C. When you get to the Potter's house at 1658 Columbia Road, go ahead and step inside if it's open. Welcome to Potter's House, a not-for-profit bookstore and cafe with a great selection of radical books and some vegan fare, too. The good folks here have been kind enough to hold a scrapbook of anti-globalization mementos for you to check out. But also, we're pretty close to the end of our walk, so you can come back at the end if you're anxious just to finish now. If the shop is closed, we highly encourage you to come back another day. 
The scrapbooks are like little museums we've meticulously curated, and they're definitely worth a look. To check them out, just walk up to the counter and tell them you're on the anti-globalization walking tour, and you'd like to see the scrapbooks. There's two binders and a red folder. The red folder has things you can take out and look at. But please don't take anything out of the binders. And for the love of Bakunin's beard, please don't let them leave the building. When you're done, just wrap the binders back up and return them to the worker at the counter. Feel free to stick around, browse some books, have a coffee. When you're ready to finish the tour, we'll meet you at the front door. Ready to move on? Exit Potter's house and turn left on Columbia. We're walking two blocks down and taking a left on Champlain Street. After A16, more and more radicals started moving to the city, either kids from the suburbs who had come in for shows and demos, or folks who came to town for a mobilization and just decided to stay and keep working on projects. Anarchists started group houses up in Mount Pleasant and Columbia Heights. But as the neoliberalization and gentrification of the city got more aggressive, we started to question what part we were playing. Because honestly, the activist influx was a lot of younger white people moving into black and Latino neighborhoods. But more importantly, some anarchists questioned what they could do to resist gentrification. So I was working for an international nonprofit that actually worked on anti-globalization issues. I lived in Mount Pleasant at the time and really seeing in my neighborhood, just like, you know, you would literally see people stuff out on the streets all the time. And you would see, you know, it was one minute an apartment building that, you know, you would see Latino families going in and out of and the next minute it was vacant. Um, and then, you know, a few months later it's being built as condos. Um, it was so visceral, so visual. It was um, seeing that happening. It's definitely seemed to me like the most important local issue. And because I spoke Spanish, I felt like, you know, maybe I could be of some use. So I started volunteering actually with Empower DC and um, kind of learning tenant organizing stuff from Linda Leakes. You know, I think the thing is there were very big forces at work and they were the same forces that we know from, you know, anti-globalization and privatization and stuff. And it had been like a really vibrant, multicultural, multiracial neighborhood for quite a while. You know, so I don't see as the turning point like an extra 10 or 15 like white activists moving into the neighborhood. But really, you know, I see as the turning point like the metro and all of this like private investment and public investment. So... Yeah, there was a lot of of big system stuff going on. Gentrification continues to be a hot topic, both in D.C. and for anarchists in general. We bring it up here because debates about it were indicative of a larger phenomenon going on in North American anarchism. A few weeks before A16, an influential essay by Elizabeth Batita Martinez began to circulate, called Where Was the Color in Seattle? The essay affirmed the need for anti-globalization mass protests, but also explored why, in large part, they had been so white up to that point. In a movement that fought against U.S. neocolonialism, how were colonial attitudes and assumptions present in our own organizing? I think in, like, mainstream organizing, there's often, like, a lot of erasure that happens. And so, I mean, I mean, a big part of what the anti-capitalist convergence was, in addition to trying to put anti-capitalist and anarchist politics at the center of the organizing... The anti-oppression piece was also huge. And for a lot of people involved in the movement locally, it was the first time that they were really like asked to grapple with issues of like privilege and issues of white supremacy and racism and sexism. One of the responses from anarchist people of color 
was to get organized and start talking to each other. This era spawned the first APOC email list and website in 2001. In the next couple of years, the first APOC conference would take place, and the APOC anthology, Our Culture, Our Resistance, got published and widely circulated. With white supremacy at the center of today's rebellions, the contributions of APOC are even more important to review and consider. We have some links in this episode's show notes. When you get to the corner of Columbia and Champlain Street, notice the Capitol Hemp storefront at 1770 Columbia. Part of the startup money for this store came from a lawsuit resulting from those preemptive mass arrests at the People's Strike. Lots of the arrests from the mobilizations we've discussed in this episode resulted in costly class action lawsuits, costly for D.C. and the police. The owners here also put money towards preserving some wild land in Virginia and other good causes. Okay, at Champlain Street, take a left and walk down to our final site, the old D.C. Indy Media headquarters at 2329 Champlain. To end this tour, we want to cover what might be the most incorporated and influential aspect of the anti-globalization movement. Tell us about the D.C. Independent Media Center. It's an international network that spawned out of the protests against the World Trade Organization in Seattle in 1999. And basically, the concept of an indie media center is a place where people can come from the community and create their own media and tell their own stories. And it's spawned out of a reaction to the blackout in corporate media about issues of world trade and the problems and impacts that it has on communities. Mm-hmm. So it's a very co- it's only collaborative really. There's no hierarchical, you know, positions and uh, leadership in any way. Everyone just makes decisions based on consensus in their uh, autonomous collectives wherever they start. So in Washington D.C. it started in 2000 when there was this big demonstration against the IMF and the World Bank. So people came and were like, let's make our own media, let's tell our own stories, let's you know, cover it in a different kind of way. By 2002, 75 indie media chapters existed across the world, and eventually on every continent except Antarctica. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the, in, the different indie medias would focus on their own thing. DC was definitely one of the larger ones, I think, because it, it had like enough people kind of coming in and out of it. And, and we also have these World Bank meetings, too, and that kind of really galvanized and brought people together. The thing that was actually the easiest to plug into at the time for me, I felt like, was indie media, which I'm not, like, really a media person, but I did, like, go to indie media stuff, you know, because it was where I was finding folks and stuff. And I have to remind everybody, at the risk of sounding old again... Let me guess. This was before the Internet, when you had to walk in the snow, uphills, both ways, if you wanted to know how many windows the Black Block had smashed. Well, it was before YouTube, before Facebook before Twitter. But that's the thing. It wasn't before the internet. It was one of the projects that shaped the internet in untold ways, as it did to journalism, too. It was the very earliest form of people going to a website to get news that they wouldn't see broadcast on TV, for sure. And anyone anywhere could post stuff and enter into discussion, you know, and it changed the way journalism was done, because normally journalism is based on scarcity. You have eight pages, or you have a, a half-hour programming, or you have a, just a certain amount of page space for pictures. Here, people could come up and put as much or as little stuff as they wanted, and there was no hierarchy. 
One of the things that I, I recently did, I went to Barcelona for the European Union summit protests, but I didn't go out in the street with a little journalist badge. I was out there with the protesters protesting, not as a journalist, but as a protester. And when the police were beating us up, I was there and I could go back and write about that later, whereas the journalists weren't there because the police put them somewhere else because they're journalists. So they didn't get to see what was really happening and therefore didn't get to report on it. Having a central website where anyone could publish their stories, photos, video, or audio turned out to be the most lasting contribution of indie media. But the internet still wasn't king yet. DC indie media printed its own newspaper, indie media activists launched pirate radio stations during protests, and it was still hard to get your hands on radical videos, so indie media would host monthly screenings, often of the documentaries put together by other chapters in the indie media network. And you should be coming up on The Hive where all this work and coordination got done. 2329 Champlain Street. It will stand out because it's this dumpy two-story building surrounded by fancy condos. This wasn't the only spot for the D.C. Indie Media Center, but in my memory, it was the biggest and most active. Champlain Street just had this energy that was awesome. You know, we had almost like 5,000 square feet in Adams Morgan. And there was a place for video, a place for audio, a place for the print people, Uh, you know, a big room for the meetings. We had a bunch of different filmmakers who would come and go. At one point, like, Democracy Now! was sharing the office with us. But we'd do film screen-ins, we'd host events, talks, art shows. Um, We had a bunch of people who were, like, dumpster divers who'd, like, find food. So the fridge usually had relatively safe food to eat. At the time, it was really just an amazing spot to, like, coordinate and meet and have meetings and people would use the space. The whole purpose of the, like, independent media centers, like, the actual physical space was to kind of create an an environment where people could work on their stories, they could meet each other, think, think about ways of collaborating and just getting stuff out. So much of what indie media did has now been incorporated into how modern journalism and the internet in general work. But at the time, it was truly revolutionary. I mean, it must have been critical because none other than the mighty Chumbawamba donated $40,000 of their pop star money to the indie media network. Although the indie media folks were so used to their DIY approach that they didn't really know what to do with all that cash. I don't just mean it was important back then. Much of the way we use the internet to share news or information today was innovated early on through indie media. For example, anarchists involved in indie media went on to create TextMob, an SMS text message-based program built to allow activists to communicate quickly in the streets. The code from TextMob was the basis for Twitter. Anarchists invented Twitter! During the Arab Spring, the media couldn't stop wowing at the fact that rebels were using Twitter to coordinate their actions, when that's actually what it was built to do in the first place. This is just one example of the way indie media brought radicals together, who then went on to start their own projects with the relationships and skills they picked up there. A lot of those like friendships and those relationships that started still exist to this day. So I do think one thing that's like an important thing, just as a thought to put out there, is you know space is really um, special. Like having space for people to meet, like common areas, is really really important. So I think you know, especially in light of like kind of the overall global temperament, and then also what's going on in this country. That, you know, looking at space is, is really important, you know, and, and trying to identify spaces that can be useful. And, you know, one thing that this tour that you're on, you're going to notice a lot of um, churches and a lot of basements and community centers. And it's, I think it's really important that 
people utilize that. And I think one of the great things of like kind of activism and grassroots efforts and the music scene in DC is that then they've kind of helped those spaces like stay alive and grow. Unfortunately, lots of spaces and projects have died out. The Indie Media Center closed its doors in the mid 2000s. The Brian McKenzie Info Shop closed in 2008. And a host of other supportive spaces have been priced out of where they once existed. It's not just spaces that were lost to gentrification. As rents increased in D.C., many of the anarchists who lived here found it harder and harder to stay and move further into the suburbs or to other towns entirely. But also, after 9-11, the state really did begin a harsher crackdown on anarchists. The radical Earth Liberation Movement, who in many ways set the stage for the anti-globalization era, suffered a big blow with the Green Scare repression in the mid-2000s. Anarchists organizing against the 2008 RNC faced conspiracy and terrorism charges for basically doing the exact same organizing as the anti-capitalist convergence did for the people strike. And the state began to undertake campaigns of entrapment against young activists at large protest mobilizations. One notable case being Eric McDavid's. The informant in Eric's case got her start at the FTAA protests in Miami. Of course, anarchy in D.C. didn't disappear, but it had to adapt against the forces of repression and gentrification the iron fist, and the velvet glove of state and capital. As we are publishing this walking tour, Trump is getting ready to take office. Folks from all the movements we mentioned are preparing for a new wave of struggle ahead. And while much is uncertain, one thing is for sure. New generations of rebels will be born. We hope this walking tour can be one humble contribution to passing on lessons from previous generations of anti-capitalists and anti-authoritarians. There are a few specific ones we think are important for the road ahead. 1. Affinity groups and spokes councils allow for decision-making to happen on a variety of levels and in the ways best suited for each small group. Centralizing decision-making, even if technically democratic, often reduces the autonomy and initiative that lets us make the most of our participation. 2. Movements will always include a variety of tactics and a variety of disagreements over them, we are strongest when we don't let police or media to exploit these disagreements and divide us into good protesters versus bad protesters. Three, spaces where we can find each other are really precious. Defend them, seek them out, open them up, infuse them with energy. Four, capitalists and governments will always exploit disasters to further their own power, whether that's using Hurricane Katrina as carte blanche for gentrification or 9-11 for repressing anti-capitalist movements. In times of disaster, it is especially important that we put forward our own visions and demonstrate resistance to authoritarian and capitalist so-called solutions. Five, numbers are not all that counts. There were more people in the streets in the anti-Bush years, but accomplishing a lot less than the fewer people armed with vision and bravery during the anti-globalization years. The collective imagination about what kind of world we wanted beyond Bush was much weaker than the collective imagination of the anti-capitalist and anti-globalization movement. It can be comfortable feeling like there's more people on your side, but it would be a shame if all the different riots and prison strikes and anonymous hacking and warrior camps somehow died down and got lumped into scripted, predictable mass protests solely focused on the president as the lowest common denominator. There was one news clipping in the scrapbook, maybe you saw it, it described a demonstration with, quote, each protester a champion of his or her own cause. To me, that's a poetic description of anarchy, collective in our action, individuals in our motivations. And with that, dear listener, 
or listener walker or listener google maps clicker we'll leave you to start looking forward to the struggles ahead whether through punk shows or bookshops assemblies or occupations collective projects or street conflicts it's a matter of creating the spaces where we can find each other we are everywhere We have a lot of people to thank for making this walking tour episode possible. In no particular order, many thanks to Ben's Chili Bowl, The Potter's House, the DC Punk Archive at the DC Public Library, DC Action Lab, DJ U-Rock, Ryan, Farah, Lelia, Nadine Block, Mark Anderson, Zane Alamine, Adam Eidinger, Eddie Becker, Robin Bell, Marshall Brown, Kristen, Underground Reverie as always, and last but certainly not least, Chumbawamba. Everyone we interviewed is still active today with different projects and organizations. In the show notes for this episode, we've linked each of their names to what they're working on now. Check out our website, crimethink.com slash podcast, for more details on everything we discussed, plus a full transcript of the show. If you enjoyed the format of this episode and would like to tell your own local anarchist history via walking tour... We'd be happy to share everything we learned in the process of making this one. You can stay in touch with us by email to podcast at crimethink.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's no clear road ahead. We make the road by walking. <laughs>